Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Shauna Lowe. I am with the Institute for Asian American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And I'm here today to have a conversation with Professor Lee Sung Liu. He is Associate Professor of History at the Mass College of Art. And we will be talking about his book, which is entitled Chinese Student Migration and Selective Citizenship. Mobility, Community, and Identity Between China and the United States. And it is a part of the Chinese World Series from Routledge. Professor Liu, how Hello. are you? Thank you. Thank you, Shiana, for taking the time to interview me for this book. Of course. Why don't we start uh, with you telling us a bit about the background, about how you decided to write this book, and... What inspired you to talk about this topic? Great. Um, I've always been interested in studying Chinese students studying in the United States. And um, when I was a student in China, I read many books about Chinese who were educated in the United States and then who returned, who became renowned intellectuals and reformers in modern China. And that included the first Chinese student uh, who graduated from American College, and that is Yang Wen. So I really like those stories, and they are very inspiring. And, but of course, those stories I read in China uh, were usually written in a perspective or in a framework of the nation, right? So the stories would portray them as patriots, uh, fully devoted to China's modernization. So in 2001, I came to the United States to start my PhD program in history. And I became a student studying the United States myself. So that renewed my interest in studying Chinese students uh, getting the education in the United States. And my training as an immigration historian at the University of Minnesota also helped me to rethink the stories I'm familiar with uh, because I've learned to pay more attention to uh, social and cultural history to understand the migrants, their own stories, their own voices rather than just the stories of the nations. So I have become more critical about like the national perspective, the national history. And so I would say uh, my writing of this book, the origin of this book is very personal. As I said, I was very interested in the experience of Chinese students in the United States from the very beginning. And then 
I kind of combined my interest and my training in China and in the United States, which means while I was very interested in political and diplomatic history when I was studying China. And then after I came to the States, I'm trained as a social historian. So I combined my interest in political and diplo diplomatic history with my interest in social and cultural history. And also I have become an Asian Americanist. So I start to look at the experiences of Chinese students as a part of the Chinese and Asian American communities in the United States. So that explains why I uh, did research on this topic and why I also structured the book uh, based on the transnational journey of these students. Why they came, how they came, and how they encountered American immigration policies, how they uh, built their own communities, how they constructed their identities, and also how they chose their citizenship. And that, in fact, is based on the very interesting trends in the 2000s of the Chinese student migration, which really shaped my research, my whole project. And that's also part of the reason why I wrote this book. Because in the 2000s, when I came to the States, and when I started to do my research, and later turning the dissertation into the book, I witnessed the new trends of Chinese student migration. Uh, first of all, the return migration became very prominent in the early 2000s. And those people uh, are called haigui, sea turtles in Chinese, right? And that refers to their um, experience of going back to China, but not necessarily stay in China, resettle in China they would come back and forth. Just like the sea turtle, they come ashore and then they go back to the sea. So many Chinese students turned migrants, they would go back to China, look for great career opportunities, but they keep their home in the United States. And they often come back to visit and then some of them later would come back and resettle in the United States. So I want to understand um, why these people chose to go back to China and what's their experience in China and why they chose to keep their families, keep their home in the United States. So that's basically the topic of the last chapter of the dissertation and later in the last chapter of the book about the return migration and the meanings of citizenship and the selective citizenship which is the title of the book. So that's one major trend in the 2000s. Another trend, in fact, is, was in the mid-2000s, when I was about to finish, in fact, um, my dissertation research, then there was this new surge of Chinese students at a much younger age, right, who came to the United States as undergraduate students or even as high school students, yes. right? Yes. And also there was this surge of um, professionals, the new rich in China, who decided to settle in the West. So I was trying to understand why, why this new trend in the 2000s. And it, in fact, it's pretty clear, because in the 2000s, mid-2000s, 
um, there was accumulated wealth in China for the rights of the middle class, especially within the booming housing market. So many people in the cities they got rich, and they would devote everything they have to their children's overseas education. That's why we see many people, many young students came to the States as undergraduates and as high school students. Um, and also the trend of the new rich coming to the West mm -hmm. to settle there because there was serious public concern in China mm -hmm. in the mid-2000 about we know the air pollution and yes. also the food safety yes. and sometimes the public morality. So there's this mm -hmm. concern about the living environment, life quality in China that motivated people to go away, go abroad, to settle abroad. So that's the second major trend in the 2000s. I feel like very interesting for me to include and also for me to rethink about the whole trajectory of Chinese student and professional migration. So, but overall I think the book is a very interesting and exciting project because as I mentioned it really touches upon so many different aspects of our society and it took place on so many levels, local, national, transnational, and it's constantly changing and it's very relevant to our daily lives. So that's why <laughs> I wrote this book. Yes, so through the topic of student migration, you have to examine many, many aspects of, of society and of foreign policy as well, mm -hmm. and nations. Um, would you explain to us a little bit more about the term selective citizenship that you have used in the title? Mm -hmm. um, in addition, um, tell us something about the main argument of your book mm -hmm. and the contribution you think it makes to the literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I chose the term selective citizenship as a keyword in the title and uh, that's kind of the key argument of the whole book. As I mentioned, um, many Chinese students and especially students turned migrants they went back to China, but they still kept the families in the United States. And I had many interviews with them back in China, in Shanghai, in Beijing. And they also had very lively discussions on the internet, on social media, about why they chose this lifestyle, right? Why they chose to go back and forth, and how they identify themselves. So I realized that uh, citizenship is a very, very important uh, issue to them. And um, I came up with this concept also because I was reading anthropologist Iowa Wang's book, Flexible Citizenship, which was yes. published in the late 1990s. Very important, thought-provoking book. And she was using flexible citizenship to describe the Hong Kong business elites Mm -hmm. who could possess multiple passports, mm -hmm. right, and who could travel freely, and who would circumvent national boundaries, na national borders, or national 
uh, restrictions by allocating their resources in different sites so they could maximize their profits, maximize their mobility. Um, that's a very good starting point to think about the mobility and the choices of people's migration and their choices of citizenship. But somehow I feel like for this mainland Chinese students turned migrants, it's more complicated uh, because Chi mainland China does not allow dual citizenship, right? right. It's right. a historically right. formed citizenship law uh, that you can only have one single citizenship, one single nationality, uh, because historically, um, since the late Qing Dynasty and also during the Republican era, so China did allow dual citizenship. But um, that, especially after the founding of the People's Republic of China with the Red Scare and with the uh, newly created independent states, nation states in Southeast Asia, then many Chinese ethnic Chinese communities in Southeast Asia uh, were suspected as China loyalists mm. and they were persecuted and they were distrusted and so that caused a lot of problems not just for uh, mainland China for its relations with this newly created uh, post-colonial nation-states in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. but also it caused a lot of problems, troubles for Chinese living in Southeast Asia. So for all these reasons, for national security and for uh, also the better uh, localization of the migrants, then mainland China, the Communist Party adopted a policy in the mid-1950s mm -hmm. to abolish this dual nationality policy I and see. instead established a single nationality law. So there is this historical um, root reason for the establishment of this single nationality law. And then uh, in fact there was this trend in the late 1990s and early 2000s because many Chinese migrants, especially for these professional migrants with a, a relatively more social mobility, and they advocated for changing the nationality law and to install this dual nationality policy. Mm -hmm. But somehow, uh, it may not be in the best interests for migrants, for Chinese communities, for example, in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. right, who mm -hmm. had a, a different history of migration and different political, economic contexts. And also, uh, the Chinese government uh, may not prefer dual citizenship, uh, again, considering its national security. Mm. So, for these many reasons, um, in fact, uh, I would argue that uh, Chinese student migrants, they, uh, um, unlike the Hong Kong business elites who could possess multiple passports. So these migrants, they faced historical constraints about how many passports they could possess, mm -hmm. they could have. And also many of them, uh, they purposefully chose 
to have one nationality. So many student migrants I interviewed, or based on their discussion online, they prefer to choose to have one nationality, one citizen, one ship, one passport, rather than have both Chinese and another country's passports. So I use this concept of selective citizenship to highlight this historical complexity, right, of the nationality, different nationality laws, and also the different. Uh, calculations, different uh, needs of these different groups of migrants. Not just the Chinese professional migrants, but we need to consider the history and the, the reality of migrants in other parts of the world. Um, so that's about this concept, selective citizenship. It's both of, uh, it's, it, it captures, I think, the nature of this negotiation between nation-states and migrants. On the one hand, nation-states they chose, right? They selected migrants. On the other hand, yes. migrants also uh, selected uh, their own citizenship. But again, it's not post-national world. It, it, they face a lot of constraints depending on the, again, the, the, the different uh, circumstances and different histories of different groups of migrants. So, uh, that's about that concept, but for the other major arguments of the book, I would like to share two major arguments. One is uh, the meanings of the American dream, and that's really the argument in my first chapters. So, my first chapter delineates the four different waves of Chinese student migration from the late 1970s. So, that's the starting point of my research. So. Um, in 1978, China started its open door and reform policies, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first wave of Chinese student migration took place starting from the 1978, late 1970s up to the early 1980s, when in fact the majority of Chinese students and scholars came abroad were supported, funded by the Chinese government. Mm. So that's a time when they rediscovered America and then idealized America. Mm -hmm. And then the second wave from the early 1980s up to the late 1980s, that was a time when uh, more students came abroad as self-funded because the Chinese government, in fact, in 1984 or 1985, uh, publicized the new policy saying we encourage, we allow students to go abroad as self-funded rather mm. than just state-funded students. So many students came abroad this way and they uh, looked for better economic opportunities and uh, political freedom, uh, especially around the Tiananmen Square incident in 1989, right? right. So that's the second stage in right. my study. Then the third wave of Chinese student migration took place from the early 1990s to the uh, late 1990s. So when increasing number of Chinese students went abroad and they had a much more complicated understanding of American society because they now knew American society better. Mm -hmm. And also the return migration started. So that's kind of the third stage. And then the fourth stage uh, was uh, particularly prominent in the mid-2000s up to now. So we see 
right? As I just mentioned, the wave of younger students coming out yes. abroad and also on the migration of the new rich. But yeah. I don't know whether there's a fifth wave now, especially yes. considering the new migration policies and the Trump administration's uh, trade war with China and also uh, all the rhetorics about the Chinese students scientists as a spies, right? Yes. So I, I, I think the, the uh, this sentiments, this ungrounded suspicions would have a huge impact on, on the Chinese student migration, but we, we will see that right. based on statistics coming right. out soon. I think it's happening right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so those are the four waves uh, I examined in my study. But my argument about those waves was that there's this persistent but reinvented American dream in China, uh, same from this student migrants' understanding of America. Yes, I think that's mm. that was a fascinating concept to me about how Chinese view America and what mm -hmm. their idea of the American dream is and also how it has changed mm -hmm. over the different waves of migration. Mm -hmm. um, right. Do you want to give us an example of uh, a change that has occurred in how Chinese view the American dream? Mm -hmm. mm. I think I'm trying to think about a few interviews I had <laughs> with people uh, back in China. Um, so for the first wave, I remember a senior scholar I interviewed back in Beijing quite a few years ago. And um, we met at a talk organized, I think, by the returned uh, scholars from the West Return the Western Scholars Association mm. uh, in Beijing. Mm -hmm. um, and he talked about his experience in the United States in the early 1980s. Mm. He was very fond of his experience. Uh -huh. <laughs> so obviously, that's a great memory to him. And he sent his daughter to the United States to study later, who stayed in America. Mm -hmm. So that's his story. I remember very clearly. And that's kind of represents the first generation of Chinese student and also including the state-funded scholars, mm. right? Their the experience in the United States, uh, kind of rediscovering and idealizing America. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we will see many students in the 1990s, they would, they still wanted to come to the United States to study, but they would have a much um, complicated idea about the United States and they would uh, in fact be, they could be nationalistic when there were conflicts between the United States and China. For example, in the 1990s, many conflicts. Yes. Uh, the Taiwan Straits tension in the mid-1990s and then um, also the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade mm -hmm. in the late 1990s. Um, and also the Wenhuali case yes. in the late 1990s too. So yes. many Chinese students, based on their writings and also based on some of my interviews, they, they, they could not understand why 
there was this kind of racial profiling and this mm. uh, American sentiments against right uh, Chinese uh, scientists, Chinese American scientists based based on their nationality, their, their ethnic background, um, and then I think many of my interviews who returned to China in the past ten years, in fact, they would just say that they had more opportunities in China. So their American <laughs> dream <laughs> has profoundly changed, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. I remember I met a uh, uh, kind of a friend uh, who talked with me when I was in Beijing only five years ago, four years ago. He got his PhD from a very prestigious American university mm -hmm. uh, on the East Coast. And then now he is a professor at a Chinese university. And he told me that, well, we came back in time. Uh, if we didn't come back, our children would blame us in the future because they would lose all opportunities in China. Uh. So, so you can see in the shifting balance between China and the United States did play a very important role in shaping people's ideas about the American dream. I believe your book. in your book you have said that the United States is probably the top choice mm -hmm. for students who want to study abroad. Mm -hmm. um, would you just tell us a little bit about why, uh, why that's so? Mm -hmm. You mean for the education? Why is yes, that, for is education. The why, why is the United States such an attractive uh, option? That's a great question. Um, historically, the United States has been the top destination. For Chinese students. That's why the first Chinese student who graduated from an American college, Yong Wing, his story was so popular. And that's the story I mentioned earlier, right? Yes. I read his story and I was inspired. And, uh, and it was, I, 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 I would say, uh, it was a story familiar to many, many Chinese students, too. Oh. And I think the, the United States was the top destination for Chinese students also for many historical reasons, especially considering the trajectory of U.S.-China relations, because um, the United States has always been viewed by the Chinese as a model of modernization mm -hmm. and also as a relatively beloved nation mm -hmm. in helping China to gain to achieve modernization. So it was viewed as different from the old European imperialist powers like Britain, I right, see. Who f which forced to open China's door yes. during the Opium War, and or, or uh, France, which together with Britain launched waged the war, right, in the 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 eighteen uh, fifties, mm -hmm. and. Um, Burned the summer palace, right? So those memories were, I think, would I would say, on ch the minds of many Chinese. But the United States, um, historically, has been viewed more positively, mm -hmm. and um, that's why um, the majority of Chinese students, in fact, would choose to mm -hmm. study in the United States mm -hmm. if they have that option, and also American. Uh, educational system mm -hmm. and the quality of education according uh, to many Chinese students uh, 
is the best in the world. Mm -hmm. So we see waves of wave and waves of Chinese students coming to the United States. Uh, even now, in fact, I just checked the most recent statistics. So um, from IIE, uh, the institute, institute on international education, mm -hmm. Um, 2016 to 2017, oh, in fact, 2017 to 2018, there were more than 360,000 Chinese students in the United States. Mm. So, more than a third of a million yes. in the United States, yes. just in this single group of Chinese yes. students. And that's one third of the total number of international students, too. So one-third of international students in the United States mm -hmm. are Chinese students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads me to the question, um, what future research do you think is needed in this area? Uh, what do you think still remain is not studied? Um, and what might you like to examine in the future? Mm -hmm. um, I would say... We did more research on Chinese students. Again, this is the central topic of my book, but I think more research is necessary um, because it will help us to better understand their needs, their adjustment process right, on campus. And uh, that's why, in fact, a few years ago, why I believed this book, this project was worthwhile because there were also sentiments among American educators um, or in the public that this huge number of Chinese students would drain public resources mm -hmm. in American higher education institutions and they would jeopardize the academic quality, teaching quality here in the United States mm -hmm. because they didn't speak good English mm -hmm. and they didn't uh, interact with other students, American students. In fact, based on my experience as a faculty member in the past years um, and based on my research I don't think that's true the Chinese students along with other international students they worked very hard and they interacted with other students and um, they excelled mm -hmm. they also excelled so I hope we can have more research on this topic to really understand uh, how to experience American culture and how they can succeed here and also um, how we can help them better understand American history, American society, integrate them into the local and their academic communities. And I think that's also a very important topic for, for the study of youth and children in general. Mm -hmm. And I also think we need more research on students turn to migrants, especially considering now, right, that this ongoing tension between China and the United States and the suspicion of Chinese students, Chinese scientists, or even Chinese Americans as spies. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have more research on uh, the daily life of these Chinese migrants and their identities and their uh, interactions with other communities. Um, and 
In fact, that's part of my current research. As you know, I'm working on uh, a project on the Chinese in Boston and also on the recent Chinese migrants, students turned migrants, how they um, participated in the local affairs, right, in local public debates, for example, in the uh, Asian American data desegregation uh, controversy. Um, so that's, I think that's the field I'm going to focus on for my next few years. But I also want to do some research on the educational exchange between China and the United States. Mm -hmm. And Boston is a great place for me to start with. <laughs> so there's another project, I think, in the future. I will do that. That sounds great. And we look forward to hearing more about your research. Uh, is there, finally, is there anything you would like to share with us about some of the challenges you encountered while writing this book? Or were there any particular experiences that were um, memorable to you? Mm -hmm. I think I would just share one thought, uh, which in fact came to my mind even just the last night when I was preparing for this conversation, when I was re reading my book. <laughs> uh, I just realized how important the community studies is. Uh, and how much work that might require to do mm. community studies mm, because mm -hmm. when I was rereading my chapter on the Chinese community in Minnesota, which mm -hmm. in fact I think is another minor contribution to the field because uh, that chapter shows the complexity and the richness right, of Asian American communities, not just the, um, the coast-based communities because for a long time, the common narratives in Asian American studies about the community uh, would be based on experiences of the communities on the coasts, right? Yes. California, New York. So my chapter on the Chinese community in Minnesota, Midwest, uh, I think, um, helps to show the complexity of and the different experience of the communities in America. Uh, but back to my point, I would say um, it would require a lot of work to do community studies, especially um, in the sense of interviewing different groups, right, and different migrants in the community. You need to gain their trust and you need to be responsible. You need to make sure you uh, protect the privacy and at the same time um, seen a whole big picture and present the accurate facts and present their, their own voices, mm -hmm. present the migrants' own dreams, their frustrations, trying to challenge, uh, dismantle the conventional narratives like the assimilation model or uh, the, the, the accusations of migrants not loyal, right, mm -hmm. to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I think community studies will really help us to better understand who we are, mm -hmm. not just for the migrants, but for researchers, who we are, and what we need to do in this country, just on our part. Well, I enjoyed uh, that aspect of your book very much, is, is hearing the migrants' voices 
of themselves and their thoughts and feelings about uh, coming to study in the U.S., returning to China, and the different kinds of decisions they had to make. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed the book very much. Um, and good luck with you on your future research. Thank you very much, Shona. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.